Time for us to begin tonight. There's a lot of different faces from the last time that I've been in here, so that's good to see. I thought maybe you had raised your standards, but you let me back in. I see Pete and Harold are still in here, so uh, maybe not. For the next two classes, we're going to talk about uh, emotionalism. I hope the questions were, were somewhat helpful, or at least vague enough not to be uh, too confusing. Uh, and that they got your nose pointed in the direction of, of what we're going to talk about. Uh, because frankly, as I looked over the list of topics, and I, I've listened to just one of them, I listened to, to Tracy's before this, uh, I think this topic you're going to find, uh, just by its very nature, more subjective uh, than some of the others that you've been talking about and then, and then some of the, the remaining topics. Um, there's not going to be a lot of, uh, of names and dates. There's not going to be creed books that we're going to talk about because of, we're talking about emotions, uh, and specifically the, the misuse of emotions. And so as far as providing a, a defense against that, when you're trying to defend against something like that, it's, it's like hitting a moving target. So we have to be careful in how we do it and, and have a good understanding of, of what uh, emotionalism is down at, at just the, the basis definition of it. So we're going to try and do that, uh, particularly in this first class tonight. Secondly, emotionalism is probably also a topic uh, that's going to hit much closer to home uh, than some of these other topics we've been studying as well. Uh, Tenets of emotionalism or practices, specific practices that we're going to look at, can much easily find their way into the Lord's church uh, and, and be attempted to be practiced. And, the, and they're somewhat subtle. It's not always something you can point your finger at and say, that, that's wrong right off the bat. Uh, we have to think about it, we have to reason about it, uh, and determine that that's what it really is. So just, just those two um, <coughs> disclaimers, if you will, as we start. A, a brief outline of what we're going to talk about. Uh, what is emotionalism? We'll define it. Why is emotionalism dangerous? These are actually the two points that we're going to spend uh, probably the bulk of our time on tonight, and I think if we get a good understanding of that, then when we get into some of these specific practices, you'll see these these same rationales repeated over and over, the same defenses. Uh, we're going to look at an Old Testament example. I hope to get to that tonight as well, and I hope that will be helpful. And then we'll look at specific practices. Uh, some that we'll look at are going to be house churches, uh, what those really are. We'll find those are really not so much an emotional practice as a vehicle for emotionalism. They create a situation where emotionalism uh, can be practiced readily and, and easily. It lends itself to that. Interaction between worshipers, and by that we're talking about maybe waving of hands or holding of hands, uh, applauding each other, that type of thing. Uh, spontaneous worship, the idea where there's no uh, worship plan at all, there's no designated leaders, there's no preparation that goes into it. Um, we just all get together, uh, whatever happens, happens. Some of the other topics that we'll talk about, uh, the Lord's Supper, some misuses of that, particularly it being used as a, as a common meal, or tactics that are thrown into that to make it uh, more of an emotional event rather than a, a, a memorial. Things like uh, the dimming of lights or singing of, of solos or special songs uh, during the Lord's Supper. Uh, singing and song content, uh, again, the idea of what type of songs are we singing, uh, preaching content, and by that we're talking about, and is it all just fluffy, is it all self-help stuff, is, is there little or no scripture to it, um, that type of, of preaching. And worship planning, and you're probably thinking, we just said spontaneous worship, but uh, the other extreme, worship planning, planning with the intent 
to uh, affect emotions. And, and that, particularly these last uh, three, I think, are ones that can find their way into the Lord's church uh, very, very easily. Uh, and and, I, and I've, seen, I've seen some of these in particular. After that, we'll talk about the proper place of emotion in worship. And, and as left as, as kind of an optional topic, depending on the time that we have left, we'll look at, at the work of the Holy Spirit here in these, these modern times. And I think that dovetails pretty nicely in with what we're talking about. Is, is, is emotion out of place in worship? Is there anything wrong with emotion in worship? No, I, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think it's part of that. Can you think of any examples? Any Bible examples of emotion in worship? Accepted displays of emotion. A couple that I came up with uh, as David brought the ark into Jerusalem. He, he had not done it right the first time, had not done it according to how God had instructed him. And as he came in this time, successfully brought it into his city, uh, there he was in front of the ark, uh, dancing and, and whirling, it says, and, and dancing with all of his might. Uh, an obvious expression of emotion. That's found in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6. I thought also of, of Paul in Acts chapter 20, as he delivers his final address to the, the Ephesian elders there in Miletus. And he says, I warn you with tears day and night. And we consider the emotional events of that occasion as, as he taught them the word and warned them of the dangers to come. And his care and concern was obvious for them and for the brethren as well. I think of Paul and Silas as they uh, encountered the Judaizing teachers that had no small dissension and disputation with them. No fault. It was somewhat emotional. There was emotion involved in it. Yes. Uh, and I think we'll see that and as we get there towards, uh, in the next class, proper displays of emotion. We'll actually break that down and figure out how that, how that works. And we'll see a distinct pattern. And we'll revisit these examples again. Uh, some modern examples we can think of is joy over a new convert, prayer in troubled times. Uh, when we do partake of the Lord's Supper and we, we have these feelings of, of guilt or, or unworthiness or, or Great thanksgiving. Those are all acceptable uh, emotional displays. Emotion is not out of place uh, in worship. But that's not what we're talking about. So let's define uh, emotionalism. And I think we can come up with uh, basically three tenets, if you will, of of emotionalism. Uh, The first of which is emotionalism substitutes emotions and feelings for true spirituality. And as evidence, I handed out the question Sunday before Jeff preached that lesson on spirituality, but it, it fit right nicely, and, I, and I, I've used some of those things. Let's talk about what true spirituality is. What is meant by, by being spiritual? And, and you saw this slide on Sunday. Things that have their origin with God that is in harmony with His character, uh, as described by vines. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 1 and, and verse 18, as he's reaching out to his people to bring them back, God says what? He says, come, let us reason together. Uh, let's, let's use our mind. Let's, let's be on the same, the same page with each other. Look at this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 13 through 16, and notice the words in bold. Uh, These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual, uh, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, uh, yet he himself rightly is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of God, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And stated a little more explicitly in chapter 14 of the same book, 
If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or to be spiritual, what? Let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of God. Uh, the spiritual man is the man that's going to be concerned with knowing what the Word of God is. He's going to be concerned with possessing that knowledge. Uh, also, the spiritual man is going to be one whose every effort is trying to be acceptable to God. Not just the knowledge. He's going to put that into practice and be acceptable <coughs> to God. First Peter chapter 2, and verse 5, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are what? That are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you're going to know the Word of God. You're going to put the Word of God into practice. That's what a spiritual person is going to do. And the result of being spiritual is not necessarily an emotional result, but it's a godly peace. And if we look at this uh, godly peace as described in the Philippian letter, again, notice the bold words here. All of these things that are being done are being done in the Lord or, or uh, through the Lord. He's rejoicing in the Lord. The prayers are being made to God and the result of that will be the peace of God which surpasses uh, all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. And then he gives this list and down in verse 9 he says, The things which you learned and received and heard in me, these do, these things of God that you learned and received, these do, and the result will be the God of peace will be with you. So, if you compare what we're substituting for spiritual things, this is what we have. We have emotionalism, and, and, and emotionalism can be in varying degrees, but basically the uh, suspension of rational thought or the overwhelming of rational thought, uh, the preference of emotional over the rational at the very least, uh, we're looking at things that are exciting, things that give us this sense of ecstasy or uh, euphoria. And these things are also temporary. They last for a short time, usually as we're there uh, in a particular setting. And they need to be reproduced again. And, and to get that same feeling again, usually we have to do something uh, a little more dramatic. We have to work a little harder uh, to achieve that same goal. As opposed to spiritual, which actually comes out to be almost the exact opposite. Instead of the suspension of reason, you're using careful thought, you're using self-control, uh, you're reliably obeying those things that you have become aware of through the knowledge of God's Word, and the result of that is true peace, which is a lasting confidence that you're doing what God wants you to do, and an expectant hope um, that you can be with Him. So we're replacing this with this. That's what emotionalism is. It substitutes the emotions and feelings for what is really true spirituality. Uh, the second uh, major point of emotionalism is that experiencing these emotions that we've just described <laughs> and these feelings, that becomes the goal of worship. That's what we're looking to do. And we have these expressions, get me happy, make me cry, excite me. It's about me. What can you do for me to make me uh, achieve this state? This goal is often justified as, as edification. And passages will be used such as Colossians 3.16. Uh, our singing we teach and admonish one another. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And I'll add that all these passages are valid passages. Edification is valid. But in this point, it's being pushed to the front. That's the goal of worship is edification. 
First Thessalonians 5.11 Comfort each other and edify one another. And Hebrews, consider one another, exhorting one another. An example would be uh, to have a, a special solo performed during the, the Lord's Supper or facing each other when we sing. And then we could use that passage, Colossians 3.16, to say, uh, while we're teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we're putting that, uh, the emphasis on that admonition, that, that uh, edification, when it's really just an appeal to achieving that emotional state. Um, actually, let me back up on that first. And we find, just as we've already described, that it's external stimuli are often used to provoke these reactions that we've talked about. Dimming the lights, holding hands, clapping, waving our hands, these special choirs or solos, things like that. And so is what you end up with in the assembly then are, are things like this. This is a book called Navigating the Winds of Change by Lynn Anderson. And a paraphrase from here, uh, an episode that occurred, a Sunday morning assembly in which a communion trio sang to the congregation and thereby helped us express emotions for which the congregation knew no song. The congregation sat profoundly moved with uplifted faces as tears flowed. Another passage. A soloist confessed he used to feel guilty for feeling the way he felt now after singing a solo. His present sentiment is, I can't imagine honoring God any other way. And the conclusion was that the Spirit of God fell in rich measure on the place. As you look at those two examples, where is the emphasis? It's on the person, that's right. The first example was, was, was the Lord's Supper, I take. And what emphasis is there on remembering uh, the Lord's death? There's none. It's, it's the feeling that was expressed by the congregation after receiving this song from the communion trio. Uh, that's what happens when we let emotionalism in. It becomes the goal uh, of worship. And the final point on actually what is emotionalism, uh, the obvious conclusion of these first two points is that in order to achieve this new goal, for our worship, which is that of, of experiencing these emotions, we can set aside the scriptural instructions. Obedience to scriptural instructions become secondary to this new goal of worship. So instead of having passages like this, Exodus chapter 39, this is upon the completion of the work of the tabernacle, according to, notice the words in bold, all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did. The Lord commanded, they so did. Then Moses looked over all the work and they had done it as the Lord had commanded, just so they had done it. And Moses blessed them. Uh, therefore, this is um, Moses again speaking to them in Deuteronomy. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. He says again, be careful to observe all the statutes and judgments which I set before you. Instead of these, we have, I think, I feel, this is what I am experiencing in worship. And that's what the focus becomes. What I think, what I feel, what I experience. And God is expected to accept it because we say it comes from our desires and it comes from our hearts. So those are the three uh, tenets, if you will, of emotionalism. Replacing spiritual things with emotional things. Making that the goal of our worship. And also setting aside the obedience to the scriptures in order to achieve that goal. Uh, I've been doing all the talking. Is there any comments or questions on, on what we've covered so far? 
and, and looking over the questions, did you have any other uh, varying definitions of, of what emotionalism would be? I felt, I felt that encompassed a good number of the situations that, that you would encounter. It doesn't require studying the scriptures. Emotionalism doesn't require studying the scripture. Again, this is this is a uh, a very uh, subjective subject. So it it can go from being very closely related to the scriptures with just a, a little variation, or it can be completely off, completely based on emotion. Well, what I've noticed when I was a young boy, I, I went and visited to a place that uh, had a lot of emotions in the in the place that we were at, and uh, it's a very catching thing if one person starts crying. Other people around them start crying. Pretty soon, the whole congregation is crying, and they don't know why, but they're just crying. And there's a there's, because I've I've asked people you know, at that point in time, what are you crying? About? I don't know. I'm just, just real sad. But we leave we leave that type of situation uh, feeling like we've been very spiritual, uh, and we associate that with with <coughs> spiritual worship, or that's the word that we use to describe it. It's not really that at all. Anything else? I remember hearing a man talk about. Uh, we were discussing uh, instrumental music in worship, and he was talking about how it made him feel. You know, when he uh, went into the, I guess they call it sanctuary, and the organ began playing. Nothing there, but just music, and it just really made him feel somewhere or other That's emotional, right. I guess. But, yeah, uh, the, that was really it was such an experience for him. Uh, religious experience. And that's where the emphasis is at. Yeah. Uh, and it's based on nothing more than do re me, you know. What am I to? No truth, no no scripture, no message, just music. A feeling, a plane of the emotions. And we'll see that more specifically here as we get into uh, what the dangers of that are. Uh, non-traditional Christians, uh, very quickly, we won't spend much on this, that's what you would typically call someone who would practice some of these uh, emotional behaviors. It gives us some insight in, into what, what motivates these people. Um, and actually, the, the groups come at it from two different uh, angles, uh, in, in large part. You have a group coming at it from, from the future, uh, the more modern group. The church is out of date, doesn't meet the needs of, of these modern Christians. It's, it's cold, it's unfeeling, it's too traditional. And by that, I mean it's, it's too old-fashioned. You've done the same thing, and you've done it that way for years and years. The other group comes at it from the past. The church has just become uh, another denomination. It's no longer connected to the church of the first century. It's too traditional because it's just steeped in human institutions. And I'll throw out the two names that I have at this point. I said there wasn't a lot of names. Um, uh, the book, Radical Restoration by uh, F. Lagarde Smith, uh, he uh, proposes this. Uh, and actually you can trace that movement back to the early 1900s by the man of uh, a man by the name of William Irvine in Scotland and the group there that spun off from him is often known by the uh, the two by twos uh, the way, the Jesus way it's not a real well known uh, group but they uh, propose sort of the same things that uh, Lagarde Smith will propose as far as the house church and the, and the benefits of worshipping uh, in that type of situation both of them take views that promote a more informal type of worship. Not necessarily less strict, but the actual worship assembly becomes more informal. At this point, I'll issue a warning. When we hear these things that were too traditional, that were cold and, and were unfeeling, we just don't automatically dismiss these people as nuts or as cream puffs or something like that that are ruled by their emotions. We examine, examine the issues. 
The Lord's Supper is our observance. Is it robotic? Is it habitual and unfeeling? Do we not edify when we sing our songs? And do we not praise God if our singing is, is that lacking? Hospitality. Is there a lack of care, friendliness, and goodwill between Christians at the local congregation? Those are all valid charges. The point is that these groups, non-traditional Christians, by and large, address them through external means that don't actually get to the, the root of the problem, which is what we've already talked about, searching for worshiping in spirit, as we've described it. Well, the Lord's Supper, I think uh, uh, they certainly have a point if we allow it to be, if we just go through the motions, if we don't, uh, and the Bible addresses that. It's not, uh, uh, we're, we're not just to do an outward form. Let a man examine himself. Yes. And so we take this bread and this cup. That's so, right. So uh, there, there is a way to keep it, but it doesn't involve these other means that uh, modern man has devised. It's, it's an examination of oneself, looking right. into his heart. These are, these, are, these are questions that are very very good to ask ourselves periodically as we conduct our worship. Just the answers that they're proposing uh, are quick fixes on the outside only. Any other comments or questions? Let's just zeal without knowledge. Yeah. Zeal, zeal without knowledge. They're, they're eager to do something, uh, but they're not going to do it according to what the Word of God says. Good comment. Any other questions on... And you know, as Pete said, I grew up in a place real close to a Pentecostal group of people. And they do get excited, and they do get emotional. But as Pete says, it'll just go on for a while real soft and tender-like, and then all of a sudden, when one gets excited, it seems like the whole thing... It's like somebody's inside the hen house. People that hadn't been around and should be around at some once in their lifetime see what's going on. Let's see what's going on. So. It's, it's contagious. Uh, why is emotionalism dangerous? And I, I think if you could take three points from this, this first uh, class today, the first one will be this definition of, of how we've defined uh, what spirituality is, how, how a man is to be spiritual. Take that. And use that as a gauge against the activities that you're participating in to see uh, if that falls under uh, the veil of emotionalism. And then these two points that we're going to talk about here. Uh, I see two fundamental dangers uh, with emotionalism. You may have others that you've come up with as you've thought about them, but I I have two here to present tonight. Uh, The first one is that man replaces God as the center of worship. And I don't think we've stated that explicitly, but we've we've hit all around it here uh, tonight. Uh, with the things that we've talked about. Uh, Man replaces God at the center of worship. And these are the three ways that we can show that God is to be the center of worship. Uh, Are you a spiritual person? Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's talking to people who were once dead, but Christ has made them alive. He's describing them. He gets down to verse 3, these sons of disobedience, uh, among whom we all all once conduct ourselves in the lust of the flesh, doing what? Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Who are they looking out for? They weren't looking out for the things of God, looking out for the things of themselves. What made them uh, feel? What made them feel good? Uh, a few verses later, what have we become? We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
That's what we're to do. Uh, not fulfilling our own lusts and our own desires. We are commanded to put God as the object of our worship. There's a couple passages in Revelation. We'll just look at one. They're almost identical. Uh, this is John. And we'll, we'll come to the first part of this chapter here in just a minute. In chapter 19 and, and verse 10. Uh, the first part of this chapter describes a, one, of, one of the amazing worship scenes that you see a couple times in Revelation. And at the end of this, John who fell at his feet to worship uh, the messenger that was standing by him. And what was the instructions that he was given? And he was given, it was given to him quite imperatively. See that you do not do that. And the other explanation point is to do what? Worship God. Worship God. He is to be the center uh, of our relationship. Or the center of our worship. Don't do that. You worship God. Perhaps John seeing these uh, great scenes of worship was himself. Overcome by some emotions. Overwhelmed a little bit. Didn't know what to do. Uh, didn't know what to think. And so he did this and he was sternly corrected. Don't do that. You worship God. He is to be the object of our worship. Uh, again, almost, almost verbatim the same phrase. John attempts the same thing and it's told the same thing. Uh, God is worthy of our worship. Uh, this passage from Isaiah, you guys should be familiar with this within the last year of this class. Let's study that as he's comparing... God to idols, he, he points these things out. There is no other God besides me, a just God, a Savior, none beside me. Look to me and be saved, a saving God. Um, every knee will bow, every tongue will take an oath. In the Lord I have righteousness and strength. That's where the worship needs to be directed, to the being that is capable uh, of those things. Uh, again, back to Revelation 19. He says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord. And the voice came from heaven here in verse 5. Praise our God, all you servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And what does John hear? I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of a mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. That's the focus of worship. That is where worship is supposed to be directed. And let me ask you a question here. And the same thing with the, with the, the scene in, in Revelation chapter 4, which we won't read, where the elders are there, the four living beings, magnificent beings are there, offering this worship. Does anybody in this worship scene ask about what, what's in it for me? I'm not really getting anything out of this. It's like the fellow that goes to the birthday party and wonders why all the attention is paid to the birthday boy. How come I'm not getting any credit? How come he gets the cake first? Uh, God is worthy of our worship. And he is to be the center of worship. The second point of why emotionalism is so dangerous is we find that emotions are subjective and not objective. And we've hit around this as well. Judges chapter 17 and verse 21. There was or 17 and chapter 21 as well. There was no king in Israel, and every man did what? Which was right in his own eyes. He did what was right in his own eyes, and was that the right thing to do? No. More often than not, it, it wasn't. Uh, when we rely on our emotions, uh, we can all go off in different directions. We're not always going to agree. And that's not even a scriptural argument. That's just a logical argument. When you try to come together to worship, and your emotions tell you to do one thing, and mine tells you to do another thing, well, that's just going to be, this is going to be chaos. And it's going to be different every time, and no edification will come from that. 
this just feels right. And so it must be right, the way that it feels. Look at this passage here from Leviticus chapter 9. We're familiar with chapter 10, the first part where Nadab and Abihu are, are struck down by fire for offering profane uh, fire in their censures. But if you go back a couple of verses, look what's going on. Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And what did the people do? When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And that's the end of the chapter. What's the next thing that we read about? After that exciting, wonderful event, they have it abide you. Grab their censers, and they go to offer fire, which God has not offered. Um, the context there kind of suggests that this was the first time that these things were happening. The priests were being consecrated. Something exciting was going on. In the excitement, Nadab and Abihu grab their censers. Away they go to offer that fire uh, to participate in the worship. But what? It wasn't as God has directed, and they were punished for it. Um, God is not required to accept our worship based on how it makes us feel. Again, the subjectivity of emotions. Uh, But my way is better. I have a better way to do it. Think about Naaman, the book of 2 Kings. Naaman had leprosy. He went to be healed by uh, Elisha. And he got there and and he had his own ideas, didn't he? About how he was going to be healed. We know that because he gets angry and he tells us this is what was supposed to happen. He's surely going to come out and, and... Come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. That's how it's going to be. That will be amazing and it will be exciting. And he was mad uh, because it didn't happen that way. My emotional origins and your emotional origins could be vastly different in how we can worship God acceptably, at least according to our emotions. Uh, Everybody and their emotions can't always be right. It's just, it's just not a usable guide when it comes to worship because we'll all end up doing different things. Uh, those two points, man replaces himself, puts himself in the position of God as the center of worship and the subjectivity of emotions. And as far as the subjectivity of emotions, if we have time to talk about uh, the Holy Spirit, we'll talk a little more about this uh, Emotions are used to justify a lot of things. Instantaneous salvation, I I feel this way, so I know that I've been saved. Um, Miraculous happenings, uh, latter-day revelations, all of those things. All a person has to say, well, I feel this way. So that's how it must be. And that becomes something that is very difficult to refute with any type of logic. Because it's based purely on subjective emotions. Any comments or questions? I know we, we rushed through that section just a, a little bit there, but I wanted to get to a good point where we'd have time to talk about uh, the specifics. We'll be spending most of our time uh, next week or uh, next Sunday, Lord willing, on the specifics of worship. Any comments or questions on, on that? I think that statement that's on the board right there goes back to the fact that if you're saying that, you obviously don't have a clear concept on God, period, because the fact, well, not that one, the one. Sorry. My way is better. Mm-hmm. You obviously can't have a clear view of God because God is always better than us. And so you need to go back to the basics of 
figuring out God before you can go into the basics of worship. Yeah, good point. It, it, always, it always goes back to the beginning of we're replacing spiritual thinking with emotions. And what that definition of a spiritual person is, is somebody who seeks to put God in the center, to put God in the position. Good comment. Anything else? Charles? I think one of the things that you said earlier is, is kind of apropos to remember that it, if you spoke to someone who's practicing these things, I doubt they would say, yes, I'm worshiping myself. And that they would they would not come out and say that, mm-hmm. obviously. You know, they believe that they're worshiping God. In fact, they feel like they're worshiping God better than we're doing. And so they believe they're putting the focus and they believe they're doing it in a way that's, that's God's way. Um, it seems to me that in some ways... Maybe the, a good way to tackle it is just like these people are, are overemphasizing emotionalism or the place of emotion is to look how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees when they overemphasized tradition. Um, you know, he he didn't talk about necessarily their motive, which was all you know very true. You know, he didn't go at that. What he said is, is well, why do you by your tradition break the law? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we have a very good handle. When we're dealing with these people, is say, well, why are you doing this, this, and this that's wrong? Why are you violating God's word? And at that point, they're forced to look at their thought process mm-hmm. and the fact that, well, I believe this is right. I feel this is right. And all of a sudden, they start saying those things, and these things start coming yeah. out. And then, then they, we were kind of holding a mirror up to them, and then they can maybe see themselves. And I think that that uh, it, it can be a good way to approach it. Yeah, I think so. And I, th- I think if we look at some of the specifics, we'll, we'll do just that. As we mm-hmm. see some of these specific practices that they're participating in, we can hold up that mirror, uh, the mirror of the Scriptures, and see that. So that's a good point, Trevor. Uh, another danger of emotionalism is the fact that I'm scared of snakes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you, just, you just don't believe enough. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
of their hearts. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Sounds a lot like some of the emotional things we've just talked about. That's in general um, idol worship and certainly applicable to Baal. We do know that Baal idols actually varied a little bit from town to town to meet the needs of, of the particular the particular <coughs> city, what that particular city needed. Uh, but Baal worship was designed by man for man. Why do people participate in Baal worship? Specifically, especially why did, why did Israel participate in Baal worship? For Israel, it was something it was something new. They had this God out in the desert that had led them from Egypt here. They're coming into a new land. They're not going to be a nomadic people anymore. They're going to be an agricultural people. And if you wanted to do well at growing things, who did you have to talk to? Well, you had to talk to Baal, the God of fertility. So he was a new God. He wasn't this old-fashioned God that they had had before. Why else would you worship Baal? Baal worship was what? Very sensual. It was fun. Baal worship was fun. You never left an assembly of Baal thinking that, well, that didn't do anything for me. Or that was boring. It was fun. It was very sensual. It very much appealed to the senses, particularly the, uh, the sexual senses. There was lots of uh, fornication, ritual fornication that was involved in that. Again, the, glor- the gratification of me, the worshiper. Not the focus on God. So it was very exciting. It was not dull at all. A lot of times the priests would dress up as animals and they would dance around. There would be a big frenzy. If you think of the story that we're talking about in 1 Kings chapter 18, what did these priests of Baal, these prophets of Baal do to try and get Baal to respond to them? Cut themselves. Cut themselves. They yelled. They jumped around all day long. That, that was the worship. Uh, a, real, a real frenzy. It was very sensually enjoyable. Look at this passage in Hosea talking about Baal worship. Under the poplar roads and terebinths, because their shade is good, therefore your daughters commit harlotry. And then down here, for the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Again, appeal to the senses. Things that were good, things that were were pleasant to the senses. Um, Just finishing this up in in the last minute that we have here. There's not ever been much documentation found about Baal. They've never found, archaeologists have never found uh, Baal's Bible. They've never found Baal's code of conduct. They've never found procedures for a proper worship assembly in the house of Baal because such procedures didn't exist. The only writings that exist about Baal are exciting stories about Baal being victorious in battle and participation in some of this ritual fornication. Those are the only stories that we really know of about Baal. Again, things that are exciting. Things that produce emotion. So what was the object of Baal worship? Was it to worship Baal? Who was it for? For them. And, and the point is, who, who won there on Mount Carmel? And then I'll let you go. Who won on Mount Carmel? God did. God thoroughly destroyed Baal, didn't he? The prophets of Baal were killed um, without a doubt. Baal was trounced there. Did that keep the people from serving Baal? Not at all. Why not? They were influenced. Yeah. Yeah, they had been influenced. And they had learned to like Baal worship. They did it because they wanted to. Uh, I think that's a pretty good parallel to uh, the rationale behind emotionalism. 
Uh, Lord willing, on Sunday we're going to get into the specific practices and see what that is, and then we'll look at scriptures that we'll look at scriptures that they'll use to justify that practice, and then we'll look at scriptures that will uh, caution against them. Thank you for your attention and comments.